going on, everybody? Check one, check one. Check one, check two. We are the Sports Psych MDs, and this is the Sports Psych MDs podcast. Or SPMDs. How you doing, guys? Yep. Ladies. Find us on the uh, Apple Podcast app. Absolutely. Type in SPMDs. Find us. I guess they're already listening. So we'll they, be there. They already it, found us. They, oh, oh, that's right. Wow. I didn't think about that Today, one. wait, did you have a question for me about today? I did. Tori, when are we doing retirement, man? What's <laughs> up? What's <laughs> up? You know, we were supposed to do it, what, two episodes yeah. ago and then last episode. And what happened? Uh, what uh, happened? Well, today's your lucky day because we're doing retirement. Oh, snap. Yeah. All right. I know you've been waiting, dude, patiently, I, and I appreciate that. Thank you so that. much. But why why in the world would I be waiting for such a dreadful, dreadful, dreadful thing to happen? Retirement? Think, Who wants retirement? Who want to live forever? No athlete, I think, wants retirement. No. Or end of career. LeBron certainly doesn't. No. I think it always comes too soon. In fact, for, I think he's going to come strong this year. Oh, gosh. Fact, don't I'm, get me. Don't, oh, you're already started on I LeBron. Am, I'm almost certain. I'm on the Clippers bandwagon this year. No, man. No, no. Well, listen, LA is going to be on and popping. That's, all I'm, that's so, all I'm saying. So you got Team Lakers, I got Team Clippers. Yes. It's going to be a battle if they meet in the playoffs. It's going seven. I, I will say that. It's going to be a seven game, just bananas of a series, epic series, epic battle. But I think the Lakers will prevail. All right. I, I got Pacers Clippers in the final. Oh, <laughs> God. <laughs> Well, or, listen. All right, we're uh, getting off tr- t- track. Yeah, I can't get you started on talking, talking about LeBron. Well, someday maybe we'll do our do own our own podcast episode on LeBron. I know that's what you really want. Um, all right. Uh, so today, retirement and end of, end of career. Yes, yes. The moment we've all been waiting for, or not, right? So retirement and end of career for some. Well, all, I'm I'm not even just speaking about athletes right now. I'm just talking about you know in the world for some of us can be a great thing. It can be an opportunity to do things you've, you know, haven't done before and new hobbies and interests and you can finally rest and relax and kick your feet up. Yeah, kick your feet up, you know. Uh you can maybe go on vacations. You can collect you know? social security. Yeah, right, exactly. You get like, you know, a steady check coming in without having to work work too hard nice for Nice pension, it. You've nice 401k. You've already worked for it. Yeah. So so you can actually just kind of have that income and then maybe do more work, you know, make more money. So you have two incomes. But for others, retirement could be could be a trip. I mean, in a bad way. It can be like... Life-changing? Hmm, yeah. Life-altering? Life-changing. It can feel like the rug was pulled out from underneath you. Yeah. I think for athletes, what you're getting at is it, it all end of career retirement always comes earlier than expected, earlier than wanted. For sure. Maybe it ends after your senior year in high school. Maybe it ends after your third ACL injury in college. Maybe it ends after three years in the pros. What's the average lifespan of a professional athlete? You'd be surprised, I think. Um, well, depending on the sport, <clears throat> there's some variation, right? So basketball. NBA? Right? NBA. They probably do, the well, they do pretty good. Their, their lifespan is about five years. Okay, that's the average, five years? Yeah, so I think 4.9 is the actual number. Nice. If you're talking about Major League Baseball, they do pretty well too, actually. They're looking at about 5.6. I think, yeah, around five years as well. And yeah. then 
and then I mean, hockey's around there too. NHL was years. yeah. NHL was also five years. Yeah. Now, what about NFL? Surpri- not surprisingly, surprisingly, not surprisingly. Yeah. No, three point three is the average lifespan for for uh, an NFL player. So it's tough. And did you know, fancily enough, how they came up with these numbers in the MLB? Well, not the MLB in the NBA and NFL. You have to play a minimum of three years to qualify for their pension. Oh, interesting. Okay. So, yeah. I mean, thankfully. So that's good. So most players will get the pension. Yeah. That's good. That's great. Yeah. That's great. I like, I like that that's the case. What's the, what is it for the, you said, was that for the. That was for NBA and NFL. Uh, okay. for, the, for the NHL, it's 160 games, which is about two seasons. And then for the MLB, it's only 43 games. Oh, that okay. That's great. Yeah. No, I, I, that's so, that kind of makes it seem like a little more of an exclusive club, like a member. Mm-hmm. Like you know what I mean? They take care of each other. Yeah, now each the, other. They take care of their own, and that's that's awesome. Yeah, the pensions aren't the best, uh, but they also do four hundred one ks and different things like that. We'll get more into that. Yeah. Um, but just ch- setting the stage, ooh, being a professional but, athlete. What is interesting about that is that the NFL, <laughs> which has the lowest average lifespan, right? Mm-hmm. That they actually don't have the lowest no. uh, requirement. In They're terms pretty of cutthroat in the NFL. Yeah. Man, you got to stick around. You got to yeah. hang around there for a little bit. Oh yeah, oh yeah. So as you can see, the being a professional athlete, you kind of have to have your shit together early on to figure it out. Because we're gonna today, we're gonna highlight a lot of big time, big name athletes that have struggled or have been successful after they retired or after the end of their career. But we're also gonna mention a few kind of no name guys that have also had struggles or successes. But most guys, like we're trying to highlight, aren't the Kobe Bryants, aren't the Tom Brady's, aren't the Peyton Manning's, aren't the legends of the game that play 10-plus years and are set for life regardless of what they do outside the sport. Right. Most guys are playing three years, five years, and they better save that baseline check that they got, even though it's good money for those three to five years. That's got to last you because you can't cash out those these pensions until you're 45-plus in some leagues. Ah, uh-huh. there's the catch. Yeah. Okay. Absolutely. So, so yeah, I, I wanted to, where, where should we start this bad boy? I think th- there's going to be- People love stories. There's going to be a lot of common themes with this podcast with yeah. regards to the Adjustment Disorder podcast because, I mean, go back and listen to that if you'd like. It, this interweaves with that podcast. Armin yeah. really wanted to combine these, but I felt they needed to be separated. Yeah. Spread them. Um, so yeah. resilience, we talked a lot about that. Mm-hmm. And we just want to reiterate what resilience is and how important it is, mm-hmm. you know, to be able to brace yourself from the impact. Yeah, of a stressor. That's it's right. resilience is easy as saying bounce back ability. That's right. So if you want to know a little bit more about resilience, head over to that adjustment disorder podcast. But pretty much early life stressors put you at risk for having poor resilience. So if you come, you have any neglect or abuse or trauma, any personal history of mental illness, any family history of mental illness. Um, you're going to be at increased risk of not being resilient. Epigenetics. Epigenetics. Remember you touched that on that word? again last wow. time. Yeah. Do you want to keep bringing that up? Why don't you explain a little bit about what epigenetics is? Yeah. Well, I will reiterate epigenetics. So most people are familiar with DNA and and genes and how they work. It's like the ingredients, the cooking instructions, and how to you know bake. Yeah, you inherit 50% from your mom and 50% from your dad. (laughs) Right, right. So those genes, believe it or not, even though they're they're housed very, very neatly and intricately inside the nucleus of these cells, where we try to protect it, you know, we try to protect them from, for example, 
things like UV damage from the sun, oh. you know, and, and we try to pr- protect that precious DNA, that precious genetic material that we're going to ultimately pass on to our offspring. You know, we try to protect it from viruses and chemical exposures and mm-hmm. stuff like that. And as it were, also internal stressors that can generate things like inflammation, inflammatory processes. Mm -hmm. The same inflammatory processes, in fact, that are activated when we're exposed to the viruses, to those chemicals, to, you know, excessive amounts of UV, et cetera, et cetera, you know. So the inflammatory pathway is ultimately a source of tissue damage, you know, and destruction. And over time, if that is unable to persist, bad things can happen, even to DNA. DNA can can become damaged. And, you know, when we can have the induction of problems that, you know, ultimately we would not have had that may have existed in our, our gene pool, but we ultimately would not have expressed had we not been exposed to to the damaging effects of the environmental mm-hmm. insult. Yeah. And so epigenetics is a, essentially a field, a study, a field of research, and really something in, in psychiatry and, and mental health in general that we really appreciate as being something that helps us understand how mental illness develops. You know, it's one of several factors involved with sort of creating the final common pathway to what we call mental illness, yeah. which, you know, for many of us will present itself in our late teens and early 20s, which, you know, as it turns out, is a very critical stage for athletes. Yeah, and I wanted to expand on that a little bit because how I conceptualize epigenetics would be we, we want to pass along our genes, our DNA that are most fit to our children. So what happens with, let's take trauma, for example, when you're an individual and you face a lot of trauma in your life, it forces you to kind of be on guard because you 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 come to you evolve you adapt to expect trauma in your day to day life. Let's take combat for instance. Being on under combat constantly, you can actually physiologically adapt for that combat. So you, there's epigenetics, meaning that the DNA in your body, the cells will get tagged and change, and you'll become hyper responsive to combat and hyper vigilant. And so, and more aware of your surroundings, and more jumpy, and more quick to anger, and more quick to attack, and to be aggressive, because that favors you in a combative, traumatic environment. If you're adapting to become more aggressive, wow. and be more um, able out. to survive in that type of environment, and what where epigenetics can come in to play even more is the, your specific genes, your DNA can get tagged, and you can pass along that DNA to your children. So your children are also now more prone to be hypervigilant and hyperaggressive and go on attack. And that's when a lot, that can be kind of related back to athletes. There are certain people that have faced what's called intergenerational trauma. You can carry the trauma on from your parents and your grandparents through epigenetics. That trauma that happened 100 years ago may still be with you inside you. And your, your DNA, your body may still be more hyper-responsive or hyper-vigilant to threat and perceive threat differently from someone whose lineage didn't face nearly as much trauma. Mm-hmm. That's a deep topic. It is, yeah. And in that vulnerability that you, that you have at birth based on that inheritance, you know, that inheritance of trauma, 
you know, the experience. Um, and it's imprint on the DNA that was passed along to you. That vulnerability can become exposed by you having experienced trauma in your life, mm-hmm. right? And having experienced certain environmental stressors. Yeah. It's those insults that can expose those vulnerabilities. Now, I, I say that because <clears throat> I want to make sure to draw the contrast between a person having a, a genetic vulnerability but growing up in a supportive and nurturing environment, how that supportive and nurturing environment can, can potentially prevent the onset of whatever those vulnerabilities may lead to. Absolutely. So if you have someone who's born with genetics that makes them more hyperactive or hypervigilant or more prone to aggression or violence, if you put them in an environment that is also aggressive and violent than what violence begets violence. Absolutely. But if you put them in an environment where it's more calm and nurturing, like you said, a good holding environment, then they're less likely, they're, they can model off those behaviors and they're less likely to express that violence. That's right. So uh, that's a pretty deep topic. We'll probably have to dive more, more into that um, in future episodes. But that kind of sets the stage for where we're going today. So first, let's, let's, let's dive into... A lot of these these you guys love diving. Yeah, it's I like, do love diving. I got a ooh, cramp, cramp in my foot. Man, ooh. that's like the fourth I, dive. Yeah, I, I'm cramping in my foot now. I think I've been diving too much. <laughs> like these uh, NBA basketball players, these soccer players, actually. Um, but a lot of the, the end of career, these guys that retire, they can they're at risk for having mental illness, like depression and addiction are two huge things. And I actually have some stats with regards to the retired NFL athletes. Before I get into that, there's once again biological factors that are involved in this. When you're an athlete, you have this feedback, this validation from others. You get like almost like a daily dose of serotonin from that every day. And then once that's gone, you could say that the serotonin levels are depleted and that may lead you to depression. It's kind of theoretical, but you can theorize it that way. There's a study from 2007 that used a depression scale that called a PHQ-9. It assessed actually 3,000 retired NFL players, and it showed that 14.7% had moderate to severe depression. Mm. And 7% of those had dysfunction at home or work. Yeah, that's a throwback study, right? We talked about that episode one. Oh, yeah. And yeah. that, that also goes into it's the impressive. other study that we mentioned, and it's actually a summary of 14 total studies. So you actually have, uh, once again, 3,000 athletes. Um, this was conducted in between 1982 and 1999, and it evaluated psychological adjustment to career termination among athletes at all levels of sport, and it indicated that 20% manifested psychological difficulties in response to athletic termination and had to have psychological assistance. So twenty wow. percent—that's one in five. That's that's fairly high. Just yeah. just for a career transition. Yeah. I mean, I think a lot of people do have issues with with retirement overall, but like one in five, and these people are in their twenties and thirties. That's a tough adjustment to make. I agree. <laughs> yeah, man, yeah. it's crazy. And then we got substance use. So there's another study from Washington U in St. Louis. Is a pretty amazing uh, med school there. Um, this was on 644 retired NFL players regarding their use of prescription painkillers. I think we talked about this also in the, the sideline pharmacists. Um, <laughs> oh, yeah. 
But in the NFL, approximately 52% of players reported taking painkillers at some point in their career, opiates. And of this group, three quarters of them reported abusing these substances. No surprise. I mean, the opioid epidemic is real out here. And um, 15% of these guys continue to do so after retirement. So it doesn't stop and it continues. And then um, how I was going along with the serotonin with regards to depression, dopamine is the brain chemical that modulates for addiction. Mm-hmm. So how you theoretically look at why professional athletes may be prone to addiction is that when you're playing the sport, just like how you get that daily dose of serotonin, you can also visualize when you're playing a sport and getting that validation, that helps raise your dopamine and it kind of creates an addiction pathway in that limbic system that we've mentioned before, the reward pathway where every time you do something good and you score a basket or throw a touchdown pass or hit a home run, you hear that crowd cheer, that feels good. Your dopamine starts surging. And then you you take that into your memory and your amygdala wires that into your reward circuit. So you're like, oh, I want to do more of that. I want to get more of that dopamine because that feels good. Yep. So it's almost like playing the sport becomes a little bit addictive. And when when that's gone where do you find that dopamine? Where do you satisfy that reward pathway that you were doing since you were like five, six, seven years old? Yeah. So these are biological reasons, physiological reasons why professional athletes may be more prone to substance use or depression because of serotonin, because of dopamine. Yeah, you know, what this reminds me of, and, and by the way, that was so eloquently done. Oh, that I appreciate was, that, that was, Armin. That was amazing. Yeah, I think the, the audience really appreciated that. And what it reminds me of is this story that I, uh, I read a little bit about with a boxer, former boxer, uh, great boxer. Finally, we're doing some combat sports. Yeah, yeah, we're going we're gonna to go, we're going to dive deep into some combat sports. Yeah, uh, but no, man, this guy, this guy, Sugar Ray Leonard, all right? Legend. Yeah. Um, Sugar Ray Leonard... So I remember him as being, he's one of the first guys that I saw uh, on like boxing on TV, you know, in the big stage and the prize fight. And he was kind of like, there's like Mike Tyson, right? He was like the big heavyweight guy that I remember, again, in my generation as a, you know, in childhood watching sports. And then in the, like the lower weight classes, like the smaller guys, at first it was Sugar Ray Leonard. You know, he was a flashy guy. You know, he was the guy in the commercials and and all of that. And and there was just something about Sugar Ray and how he moved. You know, and, and his swagger and his confidence. And you know, he had the, that million dollar smile like Magic Johnson. Still you know? does. Still does. Yeah, you're right. And he was a just for me. Just again, the eye test as a kid. You know, and I feel like a, a kid's vision is it tends to be pure. You mm-hmm. know, and unfiltered. And it was just beautiful to watch him box in the ring, you know, the way he used to kind of juke and stick and move. And I kind of idolized Sugar Ray Leonard. He was great. And so years is years later as an adult, you know, I'm reading this story about this man that I idolized. And interestingly enough, I saw him later on down the road being a commentator for boxing and doing other things in the industry and, you know, seemingly to be successful. I was shocked by what I read about his life after boxing. I guess I had, I had remember like peripherally there was some divorce, right? And there were some other things that happened, but I just didn't know, maybe I was too young. Apparently though, Sugar Ray Leonard fell off hard. Really? 
after boxing. I, I had no idea. I mean, and, and he actually even wrote a book about it. And it's like apparently well documented. Again, I think I was just maybe too young to appreciate what was going on. But one thing I do remember about Sugar Ray Leonard is he was boxing into his older years. He was one of those guys that it was hard to, to give it up. Oh, I think it's know? hard for everyone. And he had some more losses to his overall record than he really probably deserved because he fought way past his prime. But apparently when he stopped boxing, it was so hard for him. He basically went through kind of like an adjustment disorder, but so badly that he fell deep into alcohol and cocaine. Oh, like uppers deep. and downers. Yeah. You got, I mean, that's you got to bounce it out. Yeah, well, exactly. Yeah, we we saw Denzel in that in that one movie. Yeah, he showed us how it was done. But no, the Is that Training Day. No man, um, he was the pilot. <laughs> oh yeah, I didn't see that one. Yeah. You got to watch that one. That's based on a true story, right? Yep. Right on. Um, right on. But what? Yeah, Sugar Ray, man. He but he 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 lost a lot, man. He he actually his wife uh, divorced him. So that's know, that in, that interpersonal in their, relationship difficulties. And, and she she said, I think in court that he had been physically abusive, and he later acknowledged what happened and he's been came out publicly kind of about it and said that a lot of it was a result of the influence of drugs and alcohol, particularly cocaine and alcohol, which he did not start until after he retired from boxing. I want to speak on that because there's a few mental illnesses. There's only a few mental illnesses that increase your risk of violence. Not, and it's not what you think. It's not schizophrenia. It's not depression. It's not anxiety. Substance use. Alcohol specifically. Right. And and the reason why is dopamine, man, that letdown. Mm, that right? crash. This guy was at center stage just performing in front of the world for years and years, and he said he could not give it up. That was the thing. That was ultimately the trigger that led to the, the cascade of events, you know, that would ultimately lead to his divorce and significant emotional decline. So here's a quote by Sugar Ray. I wanted more. I wanted that arena. I didn't want anyone to tell me my career had to end. I decided to search for a substitute. I resorted to cocaine. I used when I felt bad. I used when I missed competing at that level. It was a crutch, something that enabled me to forget. That's huge. He said, yeah, and he goes on to say, what I saw in the mirror was scary. I can never erase the pain or the scars through my stupidity, my selfishness. All I can do is say I'm sorry, but that is not enough. So this was actually an interview that he gave to NPR. And in that same interview, he actually, so he said that he's been sober since 2006. July 2006. So, and this was done in 2011. So at that at that point, he had I think, five years sobriety. So that's yeah. That's, so that's there's awesome. a couple layers to this. People can obviously see that and resonate to the fact that like socially, he is going from this high of being in the ring in front of thousands and hundreds of thousands of people watching worldwide, to no longer having that and having whatever normal job he has, or maybe he's not working because he's financially secure. So people know that like oh yeah you're at the top of the mountain and now you're just a normal person. People can see that and be like, yeah, that must be tough. But then biologically, under the inside of his brain, 
like what we talked about with the dopamine, there's, we have a substance use episode that we go into detail about it, but his dopamine is depleted and he's, he literally finds a substitute for it and just so happens to be cocaine, something that prevents reuptake of dopamine, which increases dopamine in your brain. And that's like the biological, physiological substitute for pretty much what he was getting through sport. That's right. So there's right. yeah. not not many people can kind of see that, obviously, but they see the the fall from graces from being in the ring to being like your normal average Joe. Well, you know, but but it actually does make sense because one of the connections I think even our audience can make to this this dopamine pathway and and addiction is think about the life of athlete and a professional athlete in particular and what they have to do they they're i mean you basically have to be obsessed mm-hmm. right i mean you're doing you have to do this same routine the same exercise this certain activity kind of the same way you know day in day out it's all about routine it's all about repetition you know that's how you get better that's how you become a conditioned athlete that's how you become a conditioned in anything you know it's just repetition that's how we had to become conditioned in, in medical school mm-hmm. it's all about repetition you know to see the material over and over and over again and that's called reinforcement right that's how dopamine works right it's this reinforcement and anytime you're in that type of mode where you're essentially creating an obsession once that goes away if it doesn't go away gradually right if if we're not tapering off of that Mm in a a healthy monitored sort of way then there's potential for crash for a crash you're gonna feel physically worse because you don't have that dopamine so that's the biological background of it but i also we're gonna get a little theoretical here so i know you're gonna follow me as well but follow with me here fans let's do it do we have fans can we call them fans not yet. Listeners. No, got, They're just no, listeners. No, 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 slow down. <laughs> <laughs> I'm getting excited. But um, so there's another layer to this. Yeah. I wanted to talk about Eric Erickson. Okay. So this is a, he's a, he's an old timey psycho. Oh, yeah. This, yeah. <laughs> we're, we're, yeah. We're getting very theoretical. Put your seatbelts on real quick. Or you can take a nap if you want. But, anyways, <laughs> he's a psychoanalyst and he is like the father of the psychosocial development. He is essentially, he set aside different developmental stages throughout your life. And within each developmental stage, you have to overcome a specific challenge in order to advance to the next developmental stage. Okay. So I'm only going to focus in on a couple stages that he talked about. So from 6 to 12 years old is called the industry versus inferiority. And this is a, a common stage in which athletes may start to play team sports. Exactly. Okay. And during this stage, you are mastering new skills by comparing yourselves to other people in the pursuit of gaining competence. So think about an athlete. Hmm. So even when you're like 6 to 12, that's kind of like all the professional players, they're pretty much dominating at that age. Yeah. If not better than everyone else, right? So they're going to develop mastering competence quick because they're comparing themselves to their peers and they're a lot better. So boom, that's quick and easy. The next stage is usually 12 years old to 18 years old, and that's the identity versus role confusion. Mm -hmm. So that is essentially who am I? Yeah. So for an athlete, you define yourself as an athlete. So think like what you were saying earlier. If you define yourself an athlete, you eat, sleep, and breathe sports. Let's, Let's use hockey as an example. I eat, sleep, and breathe hockey. I'm always on the ice. Always. I wear my ice skates to class, you know? Right. 
you, so you've been this stud your whole, whole life in hockey. So you identify as that. So this, you can get through these two developmental stages pretty quick saying that, okay, I'm a, I'm a master of hockey because I'm better than all my peers and I'm a hockey player. That's who I am as a person. So you've progressed on. And then you get an 18, you go to college, or, or now you're playing in juniors, and now you're playing professional in your 20s. Eventually that ends, right? You can't play hockey the rest of your life, but you've no. identified yourself as a hockey player. In fact, the average lifespan of a hockey player is five years. Yes. So you've identified yourself as a hockey player. You've developed your competence and mastery based off your hockey skill. And all of a sudden at what age? So if you, go in, if you become a professional player at 22, and average years average is five years, 27 you retire, or you can't play any longer. You mm-hmm. wish you could play, but I mean, the game's passed you by. You're no longer good enough. 27 See, years old. 27 years old. You retire as an athlete, mm-hmm. right? So but you're no longer a hockey player. That's your identity. Exactly. Yeah. So the rug is pulled out from underneath you. Not only yeah. do you have the dopamine no longer there because you don't have the screaming fans, it's, the adrenaline yeah. from the game, yeah. but who are you now? You you can't identify as a hockey player anymore because that's not what you do. You don't make a living playing hockey. Right. So it's almost like you have to go back in time and redefine yourself. Yeah. What you compared yourself, when you compared yourself to your peers to develop that competence in that first industry versus inferiority stage, you compared yourself to others based off your hockey skill. You're, not, you're no longer playing hockey, so that doesn't even matter. And then you're, you define yourself as a hockey player. You're not a hockey player anymore, so that doesn't matter. So you have to redefine yourself. Right. So, so what does Erickson say about the consequences? I'm glad you brought that up. So if you don't develop through these stages, you're going to have trouble with future stages. So it just so happens the next stage after you turn 18 and when you're in your 20s to 40s is intimacy versus isolation. And that's basically romantic relationships, social right. relationships. So if you're not competent... If you don't have mastery in a specific skill, if you don't know who you are as a person, you were a hockey player, not anymore, then you're going to have more difficulty with relationships. Because yeah, we have to emphasize that the identity forms 12 to 18. Mm-hmm. Right? That's, the, that's, the, that's the critical stage for identity So if you relate this back to your boy, Sugar Ray Leonard, yeah. he, he's a boxer, but all of a sudden he's no longer a boxer. Yeah. And then he has relationship difficulties. Yeah, I mean, he basically said all of this in his own words, his yeah. own narrative in, in that article. But Eric Erickson had this down in the 1950s. Yeah. So this is just something to, this is going to keep coming up. And I know it's all theoretical, but by golly, it makes sense. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. That's such an Indiana term. Yeah. Um, I, no, I lo- actually I, I I love Hoosiers. I love the Hoosiers. I'm an Indiana guy. Yeah, <laughs> love you guys. But love uh, my Indiana. Fans. Yeah, Midwest. Right? We got you. I mean, we got to represent the Midwest and the South. We're out here in the West Coast now, but we're both Midwesterners and Southern boys at, at heart. Yeah, so no actually, I went to uh, to school in Colorado. Is Colorado considered Midwest, or is that no? Not if you're from oh, the real Midwest. No, you asked. I, pe- I was connected because I went. I was in Colorado for for undergrad. If you ask people out here on the West Coast, they would consider Colorado the Midwest, but if you're from Indiana, like uh, yeah. Iowa, anywhere yeah, in the I Midwest, that's not the real deal. No, nah, that's the ma- that, it's the Mountain West. Now that they legalize pot, there's no way. No, definitely yeah, they're not. Totally excluded. <laughs> they're off the reservation. Yeah, they're sure. definitely more west than yeah. Midwest. But um, so you're getting it at all angles here. You're the biological, the psychosocial, and it all comes together to re- result in increased risk of difficulties with relationships with mental illness with more being more prone to substance use so i'm, I'm glad you you brought up your boy sugar ray leonard and it sounds like he's turned he's turned his life around 
and it took took him time. Oh yeah, he's done. He's come. He's bounced back. He had to re. re- major way. I think he had to reestablish who he was outside of the ring. That's right. And that's what all these athletes talk about. I have a lot of quotes here. From, he, you know, he is not. He he needed help. Yeah, he needed help. Absolutely. Yeah. Um, and we'll talk a little bit more at the end of this about what we can do to help as psychiatrists, as sports psychiatrists. But I have some quotes here. Grant Hill, you may have heard of him. He was supposed to be the next Michael Jordan at one point, yeah, but injury. No, very promising career. Injury career. Still a Hall Duke of Famer. University. Still a Hall of Famer. One of oh, the yeah. greatest college. He deserved it. One of the greatest college basketball players of all time. Absolutely. So he said, Legend. Depre- quote unquote, depression is real in the NBA for retired players. It's the one thing that validates you. And now you don't have that. The, the game, this make-believe world we have been in consumes you. And as a result of that, you don't necessarily have time to develop other skills for the real world. And he said, for me, I'm going to stay busy. So Grant Hill, he retired after the 2013 season, and he's just killing it as a commentary guy right now. He also does the NBA TV's inside stuff. Did Ahmad Rashad used to do that? Oh, absolutely. That was, he was my guy. He was a man. <laughs> oh, Legend. Yeah. I thought he was a basketball player, but he's an NFL guy. Oh, I didn't know that. Wide either. receiver. I knew he's, uh, his wife is Felissa Rashad, Ooh. who was the wife of you know, the famous Bill Huxtable. All right, I got another quote from Chauncey Billups, another retired NBA stud. I sympathize with guys that retire that are not at peace with it, he says. The problem is most guys never set themselves up to do something, and I found out it's very depressing for a lot of guys. Think about it. It's something that we've done since we were 8, 9, 10 years old. We've put every single thing that we have, not, o- not only physically but mentally and emotionally, into the game, and then one day it's over. You go from being very old dude at 37 in my sport to one day that you're retired and you go back to being a young dude with no real experience, now anywhere else you can become lost and you can feel it if you're not prepared for that so a lot of these guys have spoken up about the struggles and it's it's alive in there and speaking of basketball players i want to give an example of someone who had a great transition outside the sport yeah yeah maybe it was because of that quote-unquote mamba mentality (laughs) let's let's not get on the, the the kobe train too hard i mean kobe's listen He's definitely breaking barriers in terms of what athletes are capable of doing in retirement. He won an Oscar. Yeah, Oscar, top three sports drink. Right. And now he just what started. What about the a, piano like thing? A, <laughs> yeah, he's got like <laughs> whatever a, he had. He's got like a Harry Potter spinoff basketball slash wizard book series for teens. Yeah. He's yeah. killing the game. But this was well planned out. I have little details. He pre- prepared before he was tire- retired for all this. It yeah. was actually, he retired in, after the 2015-16 season. It was actually in 2013, the year he blew out his Achilles, that he actually linked up with, a, with an investor, Jeff Stiple, Stiple, to partner on investments. Two years later, that's when they started this investment company and started Body Armor, which is now the, in the top three. They have goals to take over yeah. Power, Gatorade and Powerade that's, as number one. What's most impressive about Kobe's investments is that like other players, including Current active players have a lot of investments, but it seems like most of like he has a high preponderance of investments that have worked out. Mm-hmm. You know, like he, you know, he doesn't miss. Yeah, just yeah. like in you know, I in, even read in two thousand real life. I read in two thousand nine that he even wrote an ad for Dwight Howard and Vitamin Water that ran during the NBA Finals. He wrote an ad already back in two thousand nine. Dwight Howard did or no Kobe, Kobe Bryant about wrote Dwight Howard an ad for Dwight Howard and Vitamin Water that ran during the NBA Finals in 2009. 
So he's a he's a prolific writer as well. Because he wrote that poem that turned into the short animated wow. film. That, that was his. Like I didn't see. I, I I I assumed that he had hired a team of people, but he actually did the. He wrote the poem first, but then he hired all the best, the best to, to do the animated okay, film. Okay, okay. So it was like, all right, you're gonna hire like the be- have the best person to do the score and the animation. Right. But it was his story. Oh, that's great. That's he knows amazing. what he's doing. Yeah, he's a cool. mamba. That's right. Oh, I respect greatness. I don't he, respect. He's ev- great. I don't he's respect great. everything he does, though. Um, <laughs> you want? Is there another athlete you wanted to bring up? Because I want to talk about one more guy. Um. Yeah. I mean, there's so many guys. There's so many stories. Where do we go? Let, let me talk a little bit about another combat sport athlete, a UFC fighter. You might uh, have watched him fight just this past year. Oh yeah. Chuck Liddell. That's right. This guy, Chuck, the Iceman Liddell. This is he put MMA, UFC on the map. In the early 2000s, actually. He's the dude, the jack dude with the mohawk, white dude, looking like a trailer park, but really aggressive dude. Legend, though. He had legendary fights with Randy, the natural couture, Tito Ortiz, Rampage Jackson. He was at the height of his stardom, and he was in the, uh, well, he was in the series Entourage during the height of his stardom. So he was kind of breaking barriers for, for mis- mixed martial arts. Um, and then all of a sudden, after being the title holder in 2007, he lo- loses five out of his next six fights four of which are to knockout. And wow. if anyone knows MMA, that's not good. That's an awful, <laughs> awful losing streak. So his last loss was in 2010 at 40 years old. And he goes nine years. And guess what? Last year, he fights again. He signs with Oscar De La Hoya, out of all people, does his one-time promotion. And Chuck Liddell fights Tito Ortiz at 48 years old. He fights a 42-year-old, I, I think, Tito Ortiz at the time, or 43-year-old Tito Ortiz. November last year, and Chuck, after beating Ortiz twice in his prime, got KO'd with an, no, in the first round. Something wrong with that. It doesn't make sense. At forty-eight years old, and, why? Are you well, still, the age. Yeah, that that's why it makes sense. So but. why is he still fighting after? Yeah. like the UFC. He actually tried to go to the UFC to get this fight done, but the president Dana White was like, "No, you retired. You should stay retired. You got knocked out." You got Anytime knocked Dana out four White times. He's not trying past. to book your fight. Exactly. He'll, <laughs> he'll book anybody from a fight. He brought a WWE, WWE stars over to the yeah. UFC. Holy cow. Um, but yeah, so it's it's bad. And uh, like you said, a lot of these combat sports athletes, a lot of these athletes can't give it up. They don't, That that's what they do. Can you really blame them though? They've been doing this since they were kids. No, I can't. That, that dopamine, that addiction. That bag. Yep. That money. Right? Yep. How many? I mean, what? Wh- how much per fight was he clearing? Chuck I mean, he Liddell. he was the star at the time, so he's probably making good money. I mean, like I said, he was on Entourage. He was in a lot of ads. Ballpark. And that, I have no idea to be honest with you, because I don't know how much UFC fighters are putting back. Like nowadays, Conor McGregor's banking like a few million dollars per fight. Right. But okay, let's just say let's just say if it was one million. Yeah. I mean. Yeah. I mean, it's <laughs> a lot of money to yeah, be leaving on the table. That money can be addicting too. It's a lot of things, but so who can blame him for still being 48 and wanting to use his skills to make a living if it, but I don't even know if this fight actually ended up making a lot of money, to be honest. Mm. And you got to weigh so the, was the it pros. Like, was it desperate? It might, I mean, was it though? Like, did he, did he not have any other options to make that money? You would have thought that after however many years it, you know, maybe he would have been invested it or had mm-hmm. some savings, you know, to kind of. There's no way he thought at 48, eight years after his last loss, after getting knocked out four out of six times, that fighting, he he actually could have been competitive 
in a fight. It was definitely some like a money grab. What what's the average lifespan of a UFC oh, athlete? Uh, it can't be that long. But he didn't even fight in the UFC. He just did like a outside promotion. It's interesting. Yeah, I mean, all I'm saying is this: you, you gotta you have to plan ahead. Like, yep. Here's the thing. So. It's hard because I know that when you're young, you don't know what you don't know. And if you don't have the right people in your corner, you don't know who to trust. That's huge. Um, Social support. Social support. So I get all that in the early stages. But, you know, once you've established yourself and you're like a known quantity and you're, you know you have a career, a longer career, you got to, especially when you make that first big contract, you know, the kind of veteran contract, like, man, you have to really start making plans at that point. I know and it's hard, too, because the lifestyle of an athlete, I would imagine, a professional athlete, they, they want you to be hyper-focused on just getting better on your craft. Not Don't worry about the money. Don't worry about the future. Just worry about now, right? And there's a lot of pressure to do that. And you're young and you're still trying to figure it out. And some people in your corner may not understand the bigger picture either. They may not understand the value and importance and significance of the legacy. And I think that's huge because the leagues, like you said, or the teams may want more of your focus to be on, get better at your craft. Yeah. So you have to have a good support system to look after you first. And we're in the, at least in the NBA, I think maybe in all sports, we're in the player empowerment era. So I think they're doing more of that now, which is great. Um, and I actually saw that a lot of these leagues do have a lot of what's called rookie transition programs. NFL and NBA have one. Oh, they, see, that's key. Where they get their rookies in and they do a little outline on finances and mental health and, and staying okay mentally and physically out, off the field. Mm. I don't know how robust that is, how much that mental health aspect is of it. And I know we talked about in the previous episode that both the NFL and NBA are have new mental health initiatives. Which yeah, are, which are of course. Just within the past two years, though, so it's all brand new, brand new, yep. down the pipeline, fresh and easy. But like you speak, spoke. But it's on. great that they're trying to make that effort and they recognize the need. But like I, I, I do agree with you, though. It has to be comprehensive. It's not something that you just want to create a a kind of shallow program around just to say, oh yeah, we address this. Like I think you have to really take it seriously because it's about quality of life. It's about saving lives. I mean, if you think about the Sugar Ray Leonard story and so many others, guys that have lost just significant money in life savings and bankruptcy and so mm-hmm. forth. We talked about Lawrence Taylor, right? I mean, he's known, known, I would say, in most football circles as being the greatest defender, if not greatest football player of all time in you know, NFL history. And for him, a guy like that, yeah. to go bankrupt, uh, that's terrible. There's that so should many, never happen. Yeah. There's so many examples of that, though. Warren Sapp, Warren Sapp, another guy, Hall yeah. of Famer. No, Grossed it, over $80 million in his career, bankrupt within five years yeah, of retirement. That's terrible. He didn't have the right people in his corner. So programs like this, you have to take very, very seriously. And, you know, I think, um, you know, I think it, it's got to be a program that has kind of a mental health and wellness theme. Absolutely. You know, and driver, you know. Yeah, and it, I forgot to mention, a lot. Of, it's a lot of it is the player associations, even the NHLPA. They came up with something called the Core Development Program, and that aims to help NHL players become better professionals both on and off the ice. And this just started in 2016, so these are all new. And it's designed specifically, they say here, not only financial goals, but build networking skills, establish key professional networks, create strong philanthropic and business and career foundations. No mention of mental health, but we'll get there hopefully eventually. 
but all these leagues are doing that. It's different in boxing, though, in UFC. There's no unions, no players associations. So you don't have any, any bargaining power, really. No, man. Yeah, I, I definitely see a future program involving health and wellness and a division of that program being about psychosocial support, right? And psychosocial sounds like a, it, it's a term that it doesn't sound very pleasant, combining psycho and social, but I wish we had a better way of putting it together. But what this means is there is a, there is a very significant interface between the mind and the internal environment we've described before, the, our collection of our thoughts and how we perceive the information that we detect in the world around us, how that makes us feel and the emotions and impulses that we have, and then how those feelings then drive our decisions and our behaviors. Um, you know, this collectively represents the psycho part of psychosocial. And then the social part is really all of those things collectively uh, in our environment, you know, in the world around us that we're exposed to, that we interact with. And so in psychiatry and mental health in general, we very much appreciate that these two worlds collide and that the interaction between them affects affects both sides, right? So we're affected by our, our environments, our environments are affected by us. And we have to understand the impact of that effect in order to have, I think, a complete understanding of our patient in order to provide a thorough enough analysis to provide the right treatment plan. Yeah, it's intense. And that's what we're here to do, right? Yeah. So just before we jump in, let's give a few more, rattle off a few more examples of athletes that have been super successful in their sport. Mm-hmm. Um, in the sport. M- maybe they stayed within that sport too. Okay, so you mean like coaching? Yeah, like coaching. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, coaching. Or media. Um, media and press, yeah, mm-hmm. absolutely. Um, so I guess one person that comes to mind is John Elway, right? Yeah. General um, manager of the... Yeah, he's general manager of the Denver Broncos. And he's a guy that, I mean, I, I consider him to be a top five quarterback of all time. I can't think of another guy that's still like within the organization that they they played with oh, yeah. that's as prolific as John Elway. You can't... Speaking of athletes who retire too earlier than they would like, you can't end a career better than how John Elway ended his career. Yeah. He, he went out on top. Yeah. Volitionally. Absolutely. And on his terms. Yep. When he, at a time and place of his choosing. After back-to-back Super Bowl war, champions. That's the Art of War by Sun Tzu. I learned that as a cadet of the Air Wars Academy. That's got to sit well with him psychologically. He's oh, got to yeah. feel kind of As a warrior. Good of it. You know, as a warrior, the warrior that he was out there. You know what I love about his story? I really do love this about John Elway. Mm-hmm. Is, so I was there, not literally there, but kind of there in spirit when he got demoralized in that, that second Super Bowl. Remember he lost, was it, was it back-to-back, right? He lost to, no, he lost to the Redskins and the 49ers. Okay, this is a little, little bit before in my football-watching days. Yeah, so in the 80s, he lost to the Redskins in 87 and the 49ers. The catch? The catch, yes. 
Now, being from the Maryland area, you know, a lot of my family members are Redskins fans, so it was huge for us. And, you know, that was Doug Williams. Oh, yeah. You know, first first black quarterback to, you know, win a Super Bowl MVP. It was huge. It was oh, yeah. huge. Um, and he came into that. He was a backup quarterback. He was. Yeah, he took over for Mark Rippon that year, who went down on injury. That's right. Um, but it was it was it was a big deal. I, but I, I I saw those two Super Bowls. I saw him him lose those those uh, those two Super Bowls. And at the time, he was considered like to be the best, like talent wise, almost like kind of Peyton Manning, right? This talent wise, so. yeah. you know, this great elite, the best quarterback. Yep, but he Peyton couldn't Manning. he couldn't bring these guys over the top. Right, year after year. And so, um, no, but what I love about John Elway is that he demonstrated resilience on the, at the highest level. You brought it back to resilience. Yes. Absolutely. In his early career, you know, he, he sort of, you could almost make a, if you're, you know, creating his memoirs, his novel, you know, the story of his life. It'll be it, made You could someday. see it was almost like he peaked too soon, Right. But then, you know, after kind of getting knocked down, you know, he, he went back to the lab, figured it out, got better. And then in the latter stage of his career, he came out swinging. He won two in a row, right? Back to back with Terrell Davis in the, in the oh, late 90s. Yeah. And uh, he rode out a champion. Mike Shanahan on that offense. And now he's the, you know, big time executive with the team. And he's, yeah. he's won a Super Bowl as an exec. Yes, right. Thanks to Peyton Manning. And he picked the right guy. Yeah. yeah. For the yeah. right, yeah, and, and Manning was the right guy for that team. Yeah, at that time, they picked the wrong guy to replace him. Of course, yeah, yeah. <laughs> that happens. Yeah, it does happen. When's your boy Tom Brady going to retire? You think he's, he's forty-five? Is what he says. He I gonna, believe him. Is I mean, he going to go not? out? Why, why would I doubt Tom? If, if there's anything I'm not going to do at this stage is, is doubt Tom Brady. You know, he didn't say fifty. I mean, he didn't say anything absurd. He said forty-five. Yeah. I, I could see that. I have a feeling he'll transition fairly well outside of. NFL. He's taking care of himself very well. He's got a supermodel wife. That start it starts there. You know, who it starts may- in in that intimacy. He did well in the intimacy phase, but also the financial <laughs> phase. She makes more money than he does. Yes, well, he yes, he made many good decisions. That's why he can take these pay cuts, and yeah. the Patriots well, can fill out the roster. You know, okay, this is so yeah, because LeBron has kind of pioneered, not pioneered, but. Why he is always... championed. I know it's. I, I overuse. There's certain words everybody kind of overuses. Pioneer is my. It's, well, I think my apologies. LeBron is the word you're overusing. No, no, never that. You can't. <laughs> over, it's like saying king. LeBron king. You, you can't overuse that word. All right. Okay, let's hear it. You know, LeBron is the pro pro athlete, right? He's the guy that's trying to be about like, all right, in order to continue to to move the needle, the. Mac, the best player has to always essentially represent the max, right? And continue to push the envelope yeah. and the ceiling so that all other players kind of trickle down economics type of thing. Um, He's trying to share the wealth a little bit. To the, yeah, to everybody else. Cause it, yeah, and it's true. I mean, so like, if, if the best player indirectly, is devaluing... He's indirectly doing that. It is indirect, but I'm saying if he's right in the sense that if the best player is continuing to push the envelope in terms of his own value... Then you know that's going to have a cascading effect on the yeah. market. Well, the NBA has always been a star-driven league. Like if you're one of the top stars in that league, you can pretty much call the shots. Same yeah. with same with NFL to a certain extent. Not not as much though with NBA. But but then you have Tom Brady. On the other hand, you know there's this other 
school of thought. And, you know, there are other athletes that have done this. Tim Duncan is well documented. He's, he did this with the Spurs is by taking the hometown discount, you enable the team to have more valuable assets exactly. around you. And at the end of the day, what's more important? Two extra million, five extra million in one year um, when you've already played like 15 plus years or an extra two or three championships. Well, I guess or, we're about or to find out. Cha- or a championship. <laughs> with like, LeBron in the next yeah. three years here in LA. We'll find out with Dak Prescott and Ezekiel Elliott. Yes, we will. Um, although, I mean, you can't blame either of those guys for wanting to secure that bag and getting paid. Absolutely not. Especially not Ezekiel Elliott. He's a stud. And the running back position is just going out of favor in the NFL just because you are so replaceable. You know, here's the thing. Athletes get a bad rap, you know, for, for wanting to to be about number one, particularly when it comes to these financial situations. Yeah, you can't ever be about number one on the field or on the court. But, you know, in, in, your, in terms of your contract negotiations – I mean, I I feel like, well, there there's definitely I think a strong narrative on both sides, pro team or pro athlete. It's tough, but I'll tell you what, man. When you look at how much money these guys are making for everybody, like everybody's getting paid because of the product on the field or on the court. I mean, they're none of these guys are really actually getting what they're truly worth. In my opinion, I think the counter argument would be there's so many people that you can just hire someone else and they'll take they'll take the five million versus the the nine million that the other player wanted, um, and they're gonna the talent discrepancy isn't gonna be that much different. Yeah, and that's why the running. Well, back, and that's the thing because the fans will continue to watch. Yeah, as long as you put but, something out there. I mean, plenty of these major leagues have had strikes, replacement players in the NFL. Um, MLB yeah. had a strike, NBA had a strike short in season. What was yeah. that? Which Back one? When the, the, the NBA? I think Michael, NBA? Jor- Michael Jordan. It was 99 okay. around there. Because I remember that that was somewhere around the time that the Spurs won for the first time with uh, Popovich. I think there was a strike too, though, back in MJ, one of MJ's when he came back oh, from yeah. playing baseball. I think you're right. Ended yeah. up losing in the playoffs that year. Yeah, that's that's right. Um, he's He's not hurting. Jordan Brand. I got a couple pairs of his sneakers. Yeah, they'll go. I can sell them for a pretty penny, but I'm yeah. not a sneakerhead. My buddy got them for you me. You know that that major league baseball strike that actually affected me. I remember because you know there was that one strike shortened year. There was, and then there was like the whole controversy over the PEDs. You know, and it, yeah. It, and I had loved baseball growing up. I mean, I really loved baseball. Dude, so I watched, did I. Yeah. It was it was it was definitely one of my top sports. I just don't watch it anymore. As yeah. Much. Well, it was that that one period. Just mm. it, it got to me. Now, where was your making period? a comeback? Mine was obviously the steroid year. That's what it was. Yeah, yeah. I, I said PEDs. King Griffey Jr. All fancy. Yeah. I should have said the steroid yeah. era. King Griffey Jr. was my guy. He was your guy. Yeah. Who was yeah. your guy in that home run race? You had to have a guy. Well, you know there. Mind you, I lived in Indiana, so everyone was a Sammy Sosa guy. Well, I was definitely a Barry Bonds guy. I mean, I definitely remember being a supporter of Barry Bonds. I used to be when he was on the Pirates, but then... But then I realized his neck was like three times as big. And even though I wasn't in medical school yet... He was the 30-30 guy when he first came in the league. Yeah, I remember remember that Barry. And when I saw that neck, and I was like... Something's not because remember he shaved his head like mm-hmm. old later in his career he has, he was bald he got huge and you so you could see like his skull 
his, it was like literally, literally his skull was bigger. <laughs> you know what I mean? Like you look at the back of his head and his neck and it was just, yeah. there was something unnatural. I, I was a Barry Bonds guy too. You can't, you couldn't have not been in awe of that guy. At one point I went to a str- spring training game in Scottsdale, Arizona. That's where the Giants played sc- spring training at the time. And I'll never forget it. Yeah, We were standing out there waiting for autographs for, for hours after the game. All the players come by and sign him at the fence. You know, you stick your hand through the fence with the pen. Barry Bonds comes out of the locker room. We can't wait for him to come over. He stands there in front of us for about 10 minutes, never walks over the fence to sign autographs. He has his little girlfriend at the time with a little dog. And he was just looking at us, kind of taunting us. And you know, we're all there, little kids, just trying to get his autograph. I mean, I know you get you just get tired and of doing that all the time, but... yeah. Do you think it was the... As boring? a little kid, Do you that's... Think it was the but li- as a little kid, that's something that... Irritability? You, I don't know, but that, yeah, obviously, but that's something as a little kid that you die for. You want to get an autograph from your favorite player. I got one from King Griffey Jr. once, and I, it was amazing. You know, did you ever get an autograph from a player before? Did you ever have experience like that? Uh, you know, I was never one of those guys. I was never like one of those people. You know, that was like trying to be in somebody's face. It was always weird to me. <laughs> no, it was weird. I'm not. Just, and as a little kid standing listen, at the fence, listen, I recognize that it wasn't normal. Right, I'm not. I'm not suggesting that I, you know, I was normal. I was, and everybody yeah. else was weird. Like, I, it was just kind of a weird thing. I was just. It was just. It took a lot for me to like get through the the the, men, the mental leap of like approaching anyone. It, I mean, like, and I like was a, the anxious child. <laughs> but it, it was. It wasn't so much. It was almost more like, I don't want to like annoy them, or I mean, or or it was also like. I don't necessarily want to be that person, you know. It's yeah. like, um, how old how old were you when you developed theory of mind? Because <laughs> I, I was pretty self aware at a, at an early age. Yeah, yeah. all right, crazy. That's fair. Um, but yeah, ever since then, I was like, eh, I don't know about this guy. But King Griffey Jr. was my guy, and that Barry Bonds came a little bit after that blurt. Right, because yeah, it was Sosa yeah, and McGuire going back to back, and then King Griffey was right behind them, and then yeah. Luis Gonzalez randomly popped in from the Diamondbacks one year and hit fifty plus. Um, McGuire? No, uh, Luis Gonzalez. What about from the did, Diamondbacks? McGuire he ended was, up beating Sammy Sosa. Yes, in that crazy season. Yes, that's right. And I think that that's this is the same season Griffey was like ten back, and Luis Gonzalez was randomly in there as well. And then it was a few years later where Barry Bonds was just. No one could keep up with him. Mm-hmm. He can go up to the plate without a bat and still make it on base more often than not. They they basically just intentionally walked him every other yeah. at bat. Well, he would come up with body armor on, and dude was <laughs> ju- he was juiced to the gills, just cracking him over into the yeah, bay. I, I, like, I just and, can't get over his skull. It was just there's no his bald who's it? Bud Selig. Just he, you know, he knew what was going on. You know what they're doing nowadays to get the home runs up? They're juicing the balls. They're keeping the balls in the yeah, humidors. Yeah, I have heard that. Yeah. I guess that's you juice the balls instead of the players. Right. So, hey, it is what it is. I don't know. Out, for some reason, Barry Bonds is still the one guy that has the bad rap against him. People seem they Alex Rodriguez is seen on TV you all know the time, what it was. and you see this guy. Real and, talk. If you just got to be totally one hundred about it, it it's because he married a white chick. But it wasn't just <laughs> it wasn't just that he married a white no. girl. It was that he married the white girl and then like didn't treat her right, or at least there were allegations to that effect. 
And that's never going to go really? over well. For, I thought it was just for, maybe he's yeah, a little arrogant. A guy of his ilk. Great. Listen, he's the greatest, one of the greatest ever. Um, but that's just never going to go over well. Ask OJ. Speaking of career adjustments, what about Sammy Sosa? Oh, yeah. Yeah. Um, I think I saw him in some sort of tabloid. Yeah, maybe he's going through an adjustment. All right. So, yeah, there actually are a, a fair number of guys that have gone on to do great things. So, John Elway. Yeah. Troy Aikman. Troy Aikman's another one. Great commentator. Fox. He, he pairs well with Joe Buck. That's right. Joe Buck is... Eh, they're, they're good. They're, good. Yeah, they're, they're solid. But Tony Romo's coming in hot. We, already, <laughs> we love that guy. You no, know, he's good. He's good. He's solid. You don't like TR? He's, he's funny. I think we talked about this before. He, or he's he's funny, but... It's quirky. He's, yeah, he's quirky. He's funny, but he maybe doesn't necessarily realize he's funny. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. What about that guy? Wasn't it that one athlete that ended up going to medical school after? Oh, you're talking about the career? neurosurgeon? Yeah, that's right. Yeah. It's amazing. Yeah, dude. He was a, that's so amazing. We're talking about Myron Roll, right? Yeah. He was that's a, right, Myron. He was the number one uh, recruit coming out of college or coming out of high school into college. He went to play at Florida State, was a stud. I think he was drafted in like the fourth round, but he gave up a year to because he was a Rhodes Scholar. Wow. Yeah. But he started for the Titans for a while and decided. Well, I better, instead of, I'm not going to make a stupid play on the word. Well, maybe I will. Rather than smashing other people's brains in, I'm going to go be a neurosurgeon and fix people's brains. Wow. No epigenetic insults there. Wow. He's got it all, right? The athlete's got, you know, he's yeah. obviously really smart, really a compassionate guy, wanted to take care of people and help, help people save lives and all that great stuff. That's great, man. That's awesome. That is um, awesome, actually. <clears throat> there's also Michael Strahan. Remember Michael Strahan? The TV personality. Brett Favre um, dived to give him the sack record. <laughs> wow. Um, yes, that's right. He was, but he was also a champion, Super Bowl champion. Oh, yeah. With the uh, Washington, Washington, New York Giants. Got to get beat home Tom, off my mind. They beat Tom Brady, uh, Eli Manning's first right. Super Bowl win over Tom Brady. Yeah, first out of two wins. 2 0 against Tom Brady in the who Super knows, Bowl. Who knows Terry Crews, the actor? <laughs> Terry Crews. Yeah, with the the pecs, the moving, roving, whatever pecs. Yeah, that guy. Old Spice, right? Yep. Yeah. Oh, yeah, Old Spice. Yep. His former. muscles are insane. He's still a little <clears throat> juiced up, probably. Yeah, it just keeps flowing, yeah. Um, so there's also, of course, Jim Brown's great activist. Wait, Terry Crews played in the NFL? Yes, that's right. Um, linebacker, I think. That's right. Um, hence the juice. Jim Brown. <laughs> Jim Brown's great activist. He was probably, I'd say, top three greatest running backs of all time. Um, Roger Staubach, uh, great quarterback for the Dallas Cowboys. Apparently, he's a real estate mogul. Yeah. I think he sold a company for over $600 million recently. Amazing. Amazing. I mean, these guys carry a lot of clout. Some of them were stud athletes. Some of them, like Terry Crews, I, th I think he pretty much just had a cup of coffee in the NFL. Um, so... <laughs> Yeah, yeah. Well, and now he's a, he's an actor. I wonder how he was able to parlay his career from NFL to acting. I, it had to be it was the, it was the roving packs. Well, look at the rock. Had to be had to be the roving packs. Oh yeah, that's right. The rock tried it tried it at the NFL first. That's right. And then he went to WWE. Little, and that's that's right. Where a, lot of people, a lot of people don't know that. That's amazing. 
People there, there. There's probably people living that don't even remember The Rock as a WWE wrestler. Oh, I remember that. Yeah. Do you, Do you smell what The Rock yeah, is cooking? Exactly. But there's kids nowadays that just think he's an action star, like the a biggest or an Instagram star, the biggest movie star on the planet. Yeah, it's crazy. Him and Kevin Hart, Michael Irvin. Haven't mentioned him. Deion Sanders. Those um, guys stayed within the sport though, and like we're commentating. Yeah, some of these other guys just go totally different avenues, like pol- politicians or real estate yeah. agents. We actually do have some politicians, don't we? Yeah, we do. Heath Schuler's my boy. He used to be a legendary University of Tennessee quarterback. That's right. And now he is a politician somewhere in the South, North Carolina, maybe. So let's move on, man. Let's let's move on. Uh, we've highlighted a few athletes um, and talked about the the big things that they they were able to accomplish off the field, off the court, after mm-hmm. retirement. We talked about how we conceptualize these athletes in these cases and what can cause these issues down the road. What are the risk factors? But That's right. what do we want to finish up with today? Well, you know, I, I think it's always important for physicians to, to kind of summarize a case in any sort of evaluation by really talking about, well, what are our recommendations? What can we provide? What can we do for you at this yeah. point? Yeah. Now, now that we've identified the problem, what's the next step? So I think it starts before identifying the problem. Right. I think like we talked about these trans- rookie transition programs, these guys come in the door even before, maybe even in high school, college. You uh, educate, educate and educate. Talk about resilience, what it's going to take to be successful within the sport, but also don't neglect what it takes to be successful outside the sport. And That's certainly absolutely. don't, neglect the risk factors of when your career ends, you may be more susceptible to depression. You may be more susceptible to substance use. You educate the guys on the risk for mental illness. That's right. Along with all these other things. Yeah. Yeah. And, And really, when we talk about education, we're not just talking about a lecture, right? We're not just talking about like, all right, so we got mini camp or training camp and we have like some one day seminar where we kind of do some team building exercises and get a couple of lectures on excellence and leadership and character building and, you know, whatever. <laughs> now, we're not just talking about that. We're talking about the same type of professional training you're getting in practice all day, every day in that grind. We want this to be like, you know, mental health and awareness and education to be a part of the weekly, if not, you know, the daily regimen, something that we take time to appreciate you know, every day. I, I, I love that because you're not only is it that important that it, need get, it needs to get implemented on a day-to-day basis and you need to have, be open about these different conversations to have because it's just an important as a discussion about a tweaked knee or ankle on the practice field. You got to talk about these things, but also from the fact that a lot of these guys that are in the NBA, NFL, MLB, they either didn't go to college or didn't really pay attention to college and maybe weren't the best students. So they maybe don't necessarily learn best from like a lecture setting like you were talking about or a seminar. They may not learn best if they're sitting there for four hours during a rookie seminar. They may need that hands-on daily reinforcement and discussions about it like on the football field, like you said, to really reinforce this. So yeah, that's a great point, Armin. And then after educating, you got to, like we said, you got to practice these things. There's certain specific things we can do like Armin touched about, we could like we we did that whole episode about what can we do for you. Different therapies we have to offer, like CBD, cognitive behavioral therapy, can help you be more in touch with your emotions 
and how those affect your thoughts and actions and behaviors and how that's all interconnected. So head over to that podcast for a little bit more information. I don't want to keep saying that. It sounds stupid. Um, but <laughs> Stop sounding stupid. But there's different types of therapies we can do alongside that. But then uh, social support, you touched on it earlier, having a good people in your camp. That's right. In your posse, that's in your huge. crew to support you. Force multiplier. Yeah. Protective factor. So you can probably put different things, protective factors, like you said, in a mm-hmm. ranking. Yeah. And social support might be number one. Oh, yeah. It makes all the difference. I mean, I think the other ones are more difficult to kind of conceptualize, but I think a strong sense of self would be the number one thing. But we, we've touched on that before. But social support is the more practical. It's right there. Surround yourself with people that have your best interest in mind or in oh, heart. Yeah. Ultimately, if they're part of your team, the more you succeed, the more they succeed. Absolutely. So they have to be, you have to be work synergistically together. You got to be facilitators. You surround takes, yourself with a bunch a of facilitators. Takes a village, yeah. Arm, or I was about to say Armin. LeBron, we, we talked about before, but he's, he's got a good group. Oh, he does. Yeah. He's, he's got strong social support. And what's most amazing about his support group is that it's mostly his peers, you know, as and opposed to like. What would you say about that initially on when someone um, chooses his friend to be his agent and his another friend to be his manager? What would be your first reaction to that? I actually feel more comfortable than that, with that than when I hear that the agent is a parent because I, I, I feel like that business relationship is one where boundaries are important and there's a certain en- enmeshment almost like inherent to the father, son, father, daughter, mother, son, mother, daughter relationship. It just there's that dynamic that yeah. power dynamic that still yeah. rather consciously persists, subconsciously persists as always. And then as you touched on like it's it's a risky thing to to have people that you like, people that well, people that are your friends or family to to work with them because yeah. there's always going to be biases. And yeah. positive biases sometimes don't always work out in your favor. Yeah. For those of you who don't know quite what enmeshment means, it means something to the extent of a relationship in which the the boundaries are compromised. Yeah. And I see that a lot in child psychiatry. You'll get a patient, like a 12-year-old that comes in and is extremely anxious, and you meet the parent, maybe the mom or the dad, and that parent is extremely anxious. And it turns out they are enmeshed. So um, anytime the child is anxious because it's say it's their first day of school, the mm-hmm. mother or the father is also extremely anxious. Yep. And what does that do? That makes the kid even further anxious and that makes the mother even further anxious. So it's a, a vicious cycle of enmeshment that can essentially cause issues. Yeah. So anyway, there's a lot we can do as psychiatrists. Want to touch briefly on medications? Briefly, briefly. Um, Alcohol, for alcohol, we have a few things. Oh, yeah. Um, we have things like naltrexone. Ooh, that'll decrease the cravings. Which also comes in an IM formulation. So you can get an injection once a month. That's right. So it, it makes it convenient. You know, you're not having to take a pill every single day. Um, but they do have a pill form, um, which is relatively well tolerated. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, and, it, and it, it works pretty well, too. It works really well. Yeah. If you can, yeah. It works pretty well. Um, no, you know, if you can no handle worries. the stomach upset exactly. initially. If you can take it every day, right? And that's always the challenge is, you know, really committing to taking it every day so it's at a level of concentration. But there's also other things. If you, for whatever reason, can't tolerate naltrexone, we have 
alternatives like a camp for Satan. Mm-hmm. Works similarly where it decreases cravings. And then we have Yeah. Good disulfur, old fashioned yeah. Disul- yeah. Or antibodies. That's the that's the that's the old school they way still use of it. treating alcohol addiction. Yeah. What it does is after you ingest it, if you were to consume alcohol while the, the medication is so active in your body, then it'll make you sick. You know, you'll have apparently like a pretty violent it, you Nausea, know, vomiting. Yeah, sort of eruption. Uh, <laughs> you're not well, going to die. Not, you're not, not going to die, but you're going to feel that kind of eruption. Ill. I'm talking about vomiting. Yeah, yeah. Oh. So, so we talk a little bit about medications, um, of course, antidepressants, and can be very helpful for depression, anxiety, things that happen, and restore those serotonin and dopamine levels. Yep. When good times go bad, maybe bupro- like, in the, like in sugar race case, maybe bupropion would be an acceptable antidepressant that works on the dopamine receptors. Yeah, because it's a stimulant. Yeah, it's, it's kind of a pseudo stimulant. Yeah. So, um, and then go back. What episode did we go? We talk about cocaine a lot. Anyways, um, yeah. And then if obviously for alcohol users and abusers and people with any substance use disorder, there's detox, there's inpatient rehab, there's outpatient rehab. Armin, in one of the past podcasts, was raving about 12-step programs and AA, Alcoholic Anonymous, and NA, Narcotics Anonymous, and the advantages those have shown over all of their treatments, essentially, for outpatient substance use treatment. Yeah, and they very much address the psychosocial. You know, that's what they're about. They're psychosocial programs. Yeah. And then even for, we talked a little bit about alcohol and how there's medications we can prescribe to decrease cravings. But for opiates, it's a little bit of a different story. There's naltrexone also works for opiates, um, painkillers and heroin use disorder. And then we have suboxone and methadone. That's right. So that's long-term replacement treatment. Um, ideally, right. we can get you off the meds. So, well, not if you're on methadone. You're not getting well, off anything. Yeah. I mean, there's you, you've gotten somebody off. Methadone? There's some for-profit methadone clinics, which is questionable. But um, <laughs> I think there's been some of the VA guys that have gotten off the methadone. It's not unheard some, of. Some of the VA guys. Yeah. Some of our vets. No, they've gotten well. They've gotten off of it onto Suboxone. Yeah, but then the the goal, if, especially if you're on Suboxone. Mm-hmm. Well, although it was changing initially, the the thought was to get them off the medication completely. I think over time, though, they found out that with a lot of these specific to opioid users and heroin addicts and and opioid addicts is that a lot of them do better with long-term replacement therapy. Sure. Yeah. Meaning they're they're on methadone or suboxone the rest of their life. No, you know, and they create kind of like their own community because, you know, the methadone guys are showing up every day around the same time, so obviously they're, they're going to congregate, they're going to socialize. Yeah, we, as psychiatrists, we know these are controlled substances, but so in order to get a, like a, even a, I think the most you give is like a two-week supply or a month supply to those that have been on it for the years. Most. Oh, yeah. Um, but the initially most. you have to come in every day to the clinic to get the pill. Mm-hmm. And they, they come they come in a lot of times because... And, and for the guys that fall back and relapse, most of these programs work such that they kind of have to start over Mm-hmm. back to having to come every day, you know, if they were at, at some point had graduated to being able to come weekly or mm-hmm. whatever. So, so yeah, and it usually takes months to be, to be able to space it out. And oh, we'll give you two days this time, then we'll give you three, four, then a week, and then two weeks, and then at most I think they do a month. Those programs are screwed up, man. <laughs> They're kind of a, kind of yeah. a, 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 I don't call it a mind fuck, but. Well, it's, it's like a double contingency plan because they do pay these guys sometimes small amounts, small fees to get them into the clinic. And what about those um, 
those tobacco cessation programs where they get paid as part of the reinforcement model. Mm-hmm. It's contingency management. So it's been shown to be helpful because some yeah. of these guys just need a, that, a little bit of extra incentive to start. But once you get the ball rolling, usually they're, they're committed. That well, good old dopamine, man. Actually, I just, mean, just manipulating that dopamine. Mm-hmm. The relapse rates right. are still large. Yeah, you have to. And um, some people may argue, well, you're just substituting one drug for another, right? But methadone and suboxone are well-controlled, studied, pure yeah, that's the difference. Compared to street heroin. Yeah, that's the difference. Yeah. And they don't come with the euphoric effect. Right. They just keep you from having a withdrawal. And the reason these guys keep coming in, because opiate withdrawal is the worst. You feel like you want to die. Your skin's yes. crawling. Yes. You have stomach cramps. You're diarying yourself. You're just in so much pain. So they come in to avoid that. Wow. It's quite a... To get on their methadone. It's, it's quite a thought. So we're getting a lot... Ugh, we, we've kind of ended in a weird spot there. Because um, uh, you would think that's extreme, but like we talked about before, how what was we had the, medicine for that too. There was almost twenty percent of players were still using opiates when they retired. Wow, that was a stat from the beginning, ladies and gentlemen. Did they remember? Probably not. It's not that interesting. No, it's not. You know what? I think we're all forgetting things. I think we're getting to that point where, man, you know. we record these on usually weekday nights. Yeah, we both After work a full long hours. Day just you know back to back patients all day. You're in the county but all I, day, but I love it. I got to tell you, man, uh, I show up for the fans. I no, thought, no, no, no. I thought yeah, we said uh, not, not yet, but yeah. for the the listeners. Yes. Yeah. And we we thank all all uh, thirty one of you guys. That's right. <laughs> <laughs> Actually, I just checked. I don't think we've had a single new follower in like the last. We've had the millions um, of followers. Huge. Our following is huge. Man, we got rejected by Instagram. You know, we were trying to get the blue seal of approval. All right, dude. Yeah. Well, how do you like what pronoun? I mean, not pronoun, but what um, adjective would you like for me to use? Call you by dude, bro, man. All the above, man. Like whatever, whatever feels right. Dude, bro, man. At the time. But the bromance is actually it's a collective, right? <laughs> yeah, you're right. You're right. Uh, let's end the stigma. Let's continue the conversation. Mm-hmm.